Hi guys, I'm Dee Dee West, and this is Broken Limelight. Today I'm going to be talking about Kurt Cobain, the lead singer and songwriter for the 90s grunge band Nirvana. And here's why. Kurt's death was ruled a suicide, but many people believe that it may have actually been a murder. Some believe that Kurt's wife, Courtney Love, may have even had something to do with his death. So I want to share what I found in my deep dive of the investigation and tell you guys a bit more about Kurt's life leading up to his relationship with Courtney and then his death. Kurt Cobain was born on February 20th, 1967. His parents were named Don and Wendy. Kurt was the first grandchild to be born to either side of the family, so everyone was really excited, and he had a lot of love and attention growing up. Kurt's father, Don, was a handsome guy with an athletic build and he wore these Buddy Holly-like glasses that gave him this kind of nerdy look. His mom, Wendy, was beautiful. She was said to look and dress just like Marsha Brady, which I think that's just the cutest thing to picture. So Don and Wendy were high school sweethearts, and they lived on a budget, but they always made sure that Kurt had nice clothes growing up. He was really artistic from a very young age. He drew really realistic drawings, for example, Kurt's paternal grandfather was a pretty crusty old dude, and when Kurt was six, he showed him a drawing he had made of Mickey Mouse, and his grandpa was like, you trace that, and Kurt was like, I did not, and his grandpa handed him a piece of paper and pencil and asked him to show him how he did it, so Kurt sat down and drew a near-perfect drawing of Donald Duck without looking at any reference picture or anything, and then he moved on and drew another picture of Goofy. When Kurt was in second grade, his parents and teachers started to discuss how incredibly hyperactive Kurt was and how maybe there was a medical route to it. So they consulted a pediatrician and at first they cut sugar from his diet and when there was no improvement, they started treating him with Ritalin for ADHD. This was 1974 and even then this was a really controversial decision. He was on Ritalin for three months, and everyone in the family had their own opinion about whether it was helpful or harmful. In 1976, shortly after Kurt's ninth birthday, Wendy told Don that she wanted a divorce. Supposedly, she just kind of announced it to him and then sped off in her Camaro, leaving him to explain it to the kids. Don was crushed, and Kurt, Kurt's childhood was really rough after the divorce. His parents both remarried to people that Kurt wasn't crazy about, and Kurt kind of ended up getting passed around from house to house because he was a pretty angsty teenager and he was getting into a lot of trouble, and his parents and grandparents would pretty much, at one point or another, decide that they couldn't handle him anymore, and they'd pass him around. And so he moved from his dad's house to his grandparents' trailer, to his uncle's house, to his mom's house, and was homeless for a little while. So he went from having this really loving family and really happy childhood to him being moved around and around and nobody really having any space for him, either physical or emotional. By all accounts, the divorce had a huge impact on Kurt. But the narrative that's been created since Kurt's death is that he's pretty much been suicidal since his parents' divorce. So that's the part that's up for debate. From what I can see... Nobody really had concerns about Kurt being suicidal, not even Courtney, up until 1994, which was the year that Kurt died. Kurt had a dark sense of humor, and sometimes he would speak lightly about pretty dark things, and that's just how he was. So, like, for example, 
there was a track, I Hate Myself and I Want to Die, and after Kurt's death, people were like, oh my god, that was a sign. How did we not see that? But truthfully, Kurt just talked like that. That was how he joked. Like, if somebody was like, hey, Kurt, how's it going? Kurt might be like, oh, you know, I hate myself and I want to die. But that's literally just how Kurt talked. He did play sports in school for a little while, but he was pretty much doing it just to please his dad. He started wrestling, which made Don pretty happy, but Kurt started losing interest and ditching practices, and it seems like he was a pretty lazy kid. And he was kind of small and skinny, so he had to work especially hard because of his size, and he was not into that. So Kurt has this story about how Don went to one of his wrestling matches, and Kurt decided to send his dad a little message. The way Kurt tells it, he waited for the whistle to blow, and then he looked his dad right in the eye and clamped up, just put his arms together, and let the other guy pin him down. Supposedly, he did this four times. Don denied this ever happened, and Kurt's friends say that they don't recall that happening. However, Kurt's grandpa, Leland, recalled that Don told him about it after the match, saying, This little shit just laid there. He wouldn't fight back. Once the narrative got out that Kurt was always suicidal, everybody started saying things like, Look at the signs. There were signs everywhere and looking at everything he did under a microscope. A lot of documentaries and biographies push this narrative. But truthfully, it seems like up until the moment Courtney said it, nobody had any legitimate concern that Kurt might be suicidal. So let's talk about Courtney Love for a second. Courtney Love had a pretty rough childhood too. According to Courtney's mom, as well as one of her father's girlfriends, they both said that Courtney's father, Hank, had once dosed Courtney with LSD when she was just a toddler. He denied this, but he still lost custody of her. Courtney got into a lot of trouble as a teenager. When she was 16, she became legally emancipated, so Courtney also had, like, nobody there for her as a teenager. But she received, like, a support payment of $800 a week, which today would be equivalent to about $2,000. Supposedly, Courtney would use this money to insert herself into the music scene. She would, like, show up with a shit ton of acid or drugs for everyone. So Courtney's, like, widely known for being violent and a huge bitch. According to an ex-boyfriend of hers, Courtney had a guy she would pay $100 to beat up anybody who pissed her off. Now, there's no way to know if this story is true or not, but that is a story that's out there. So Courtney and Kurt met at a Butthole Surfers concert and immediately bonded over their love of heroin and fucking. And then they were inseparable. According to Courtney, she was going after him for a while, but he was, like, clueless of the attention that women would give him. She says that she was, like, sucking the dick of this other manager, and she got him to give her tickets to the Butthole Surfers, and she wanted to go so she could see Kurt. So she went and she seduced Kurt, and then she was just like, you're my boyfriend. And he was just like, okay. Interestingly, Courtney thought that she would be more successful in whole than Kurt would ever be, even after the success of Nevermind. So it turns out that Courtney is actually the one who insisted on a prenup. Courtney and Kurt both used heroin, but supposedly she only used like $20 worth a day and Court would use something like $400 worth a day. Allegedly. I also do want to mention that Courtney has admitted before that when she was pregnant with Frances Bean Cobain, she used heroin at the beginning of her pregnancy. 
Now, she's kind of recanted that and said that they misquoted her, but again, that's information that's out there, and Courtney's kind of full of shit and just hard to understand. Anyway, so Kurt had these terrible stomach pains ever since he was a kid, and he said that he needed the heroin to self-treat it. He used to say that heroin was the only thing keeping him from blowing his head off, but there was a point where the stomach pains went away, and he continued to use. A lot of people also think that he used heroin to cope with the fact that he was so introverted and didn't like the attention that he got from stardom. And yeah, that's true that Kurt wasn't completely comfortable with the attention, but he did always want to be a star. I mean, he wanted to play music for a living, and I think he loved being recognized for his talent and his work. I think he wanted to be brilliant. What I think he didn't like was being treated like a star, like a center of attention. I think it was too much pressure on him, and Courtney would later insist and insist that Kurt was Nirvana, and I think that didn't really help with his anxieties. But Kurt never turned away his fans. He would see kids wearing Nirvana t-shirts, and he'd go up to them and be like, hey, I'm in Nirvana, do you want an autograph? It was the media that he really wasn't into. In the months leading up to Kurt's death, he reportedly had numerous overdoses that did not result in hospitalization, and Courtney was always the one to resuscitate him, according to Courtney. After Nirvana's album Nevermind came out, the royalty checks started coming in, and Courtney noticed that Kurt and his bandmates were all making the same amount. Courtney freaked the fuck out. She thought that Kurt should make way more than everybody else because he was the principal songwriter. Of course, Kurt didn't really care about the money too much, so they had originally agreed to split the money three ways, and nobody minded. It wasn't until Courtney butted in that Kurt decided to ask for more money. So, Kurt asked for 100% of the royalties for the lyrics and 75% for the music, and he demanded that this agreement be made retroactive to the beginning of the sales of the Nevermind album. His bandmates were, of course, baffled. They at least thought that it should start with their next album, but Kurt insisted that it had to be this way or he would quit the band. So the other guys reluctantly agreed and blamed Courtney for everything. Things were never the same after that. The friendship wasn't really there. So now that they had money, Courtney insisted that they had to live in a big house like superstars. So they did, but Kurt was so not used to it and he was not into it. He was used to growing up in small, simple places and was embarrassed about this neighborhood. So when they started working on the album In Utero, Kurt's friends and bandmates and pretty much everyone around says that Courtney was completely abusive to Kurt. She would call him a dumb fuck every fucking day, and she would call him useless. She was often seen throwing things at him. She said things like he couldn't even hail a cab for himself. In 1993, the police were called for a domestic abuse disturbance, and Courtney told them that Kurt shoved her after she threw juice in his face during an argument. And Kurt spent three hours in jail before being bailed out. A witness said that Courtney was totally provoking him, which normally I would say that doesn't justify it, but it's insane that Courtney literally throw things at him, and maybe she's doing other physical things to him, and then she has the nerve to provoke him to get him to hit her, so that she can call the cops. So anyway, Courtney decided not to press charges, and the case was dropped. Courtney blamed a lot of their marital issues on Kurt's drug use, though she was also shooting up regularly. She even hired her ex-boyfriend, a known junkie who went by Callie, 
to be the nanny for their daughter, Frances Bean Cobain. By the way, Callie was also Courtney's ex-boyfriend. So one time, Leland, Kurt's grandpa, said he went over to visit, and he saw Courtney, Callie, and another female nanny sitting there high as kites with Francis just sitting there. So he got really concerned about this. On March 1st, 1994, Kurt was in Munich on a tour. Him and Courtney got into a fight over the phone, so he called their lawyer, Rosemary Carroll, and he basically told her that he wanted a divorce and he wanted a new will, completely excluding Courtney as a benefactor. According to Rosemary, Kurt was planning to leave Courtney, and Courtney was only going to get a small settlement, if anything at all, because of the prenup. Rosemary also claims that Courtney called her and told her to call the meanest, most vicious divorce lawyer in town and also asked if it was possible to void the prenup. According to police, there was a will drawn up, but Kurt never got around to signing it, and police won't admit whether or not it excludes Courtney. So after that show, Kurt went to the doctor for a throat ailment and was diagnosed with bronchitis, and he canceled the rest of the tour. He then flew to Rome to meet up with Courtney and their daughter Frances. On March 3, 1994, they all had dinner together, they put Francis to bed and had the bellboy bring them up two bottles of champagne. According to Courtney, they drank the champagne and went to bed, and they just made out and went to sleep. She says that she woke up at like 4 a.m. and rolled over to fuck him, and he wasn't in bed. She found him on the floor completely unresponsive. At about 6 a.m., she had the hotel staff call 911, and they arrived at the hospital at about 6.30. It's interesting to note that it took about two hours for her to have somebody call 911. I also find it interesting, and this may not mean anything to anybody else, but there's this photo of the moment when they arrive at the hospital and the ambulance doors open up, and you can see Courtney inside with the full face of makeup. I just think it's interesting considering she literally just woke up at the butt crack of dawn and found her husband unconscious. And the time frame of it all makes me wonder if she did her makeup before or after she called for help. So Kurt was found to have had complications from combining alcohol with Rohypnol, which in the United States is more commonly known as the date rape drug Rufis. In Europe, however, it can be prescribed for insomnia and as a pre-anesthetic. Courtney admitted that she had a prescription for Rohypnol and that she took it recreationally. In one source, I read that Courtney and Kurt took them together with their wine that night, but I also read an interview where Courtney supposedly said that she and Kurt just drank wine, made out, and went to sleep, and that in the morning she found the packaging of her pills emptied and next to Kurt's body. She claimed that he had taken at least 50 or 60 pills, but the doctor at the hospital did not believe he had taken that much, and he said that this did not look like an overdose or a suicide. Just a bad reaction from combining the pill with alcohol. The reason I mention that the doctor does not believe it's a suicide attempt is because Courtney claims that this was his first suicide attempt. She even claims that he left a note, but when reading the note, literally nobody else thinks it's a suicide note. If anything, it looked like a letter telling Courtney that he was leaving her. In fact, according to Janet Billig, who was the spokesperson for Nirvana's management team, Kurt told her that this was not a suicide note. He had just taken all his money out and he was getting ready to leave. So Kurt was unconscious for about 20 hours and the media prematurely reported that he had died. But then he woke up. 
When he woke up, the first thing he did was reach for a notepad and wrote, Fuck you, and handed it to Courtney. Then he demanded to have the tubes removed from his nose and asked for a strawberry milkshake. I don't know, I feel like that's a strange thing to do upon waking up from a failed suicide attempt to ask for the milkshake, if that's what that was. I don't know. In the documentary Montage of Heck, Courtney says that Kurt was trying to kill himself because Courtney was thinking about cheating on him. Some have theorized that Courtney may have actually roofied Kurt, or spiked Kurt's drink with the Rohypnol, intending to kill him. But then that brings the question, why did she call the ambulance? Who knows, I mean, maybe she thought he was dead, or maybe she was just trying to build a narrative again that he's suicidal, and then ended up coming out as the hero who saved him. Again, pretty much everything is just the theory. But if Courtney really did think this was a suicide attempt, why didn't she tell anybody that she was worried about him? A couple weeks later, on March 18, 94, Kurt and Courtney got into a fight, and Courtney called 911 saying that Kurt had locked himself in a room with a gun and was threatening to kill himself. When the cops got there, Courtney was on the front porch freaking out about Kurt trying to kill himself, but when they walked through the back gate, Kurt was standing there in the backyard with his hands in his pockets, with no gun, and saying that he wasn't suicidal, just trying to get the fuck away from Courtney following an argument. The cops said that he didn't look suicidal, just deeply embarrassed. When they questioned Courtney, she was forced to admit that he didn't have a gun, nor did he say anything about killing himself, but she said she panicked because there were guns in the house and she believed he was suicidal after the incident in Rome. So just in case, the police officers confiscated all of Kurt's guns. So this is where Dylan Carlson comes in. Dylan was Kurt's best friend and drug dealer. He says that he remembers times where Kurt would call him for drugs and he would get a call on the other line and it would be Courtney calling for drugs and each of them would be saying, don't tell the other that I'm buying. So Kurt asked Dylan to buy him a gun for protection because the police had confiscated all of his and he thought they would confiscate the new one if it was purchased under his own name. Kurt told Dylan that he needed it for protection because he was afraid of intruders. Dylan maintains that he never would have bought Kurt the gun if he thought Kurt was suicidal. If he had any reason to believe that the incident in Rome was a suicide, he wouldn't have given him a gun. And he says that he was Kurt's best friend so he would have known if Rome was a suicide attempt. According to Dylan, in those recent months, Kurt had been talking about turning things around for Francis, and he was making long-term plans, and he just really didn't think that Kurt was suicidal at that point. On March 25th, 94, Courtney decided to give Kurt an intervention for his drug addiction. Apparently, she was getting concerned that the label would drop him because of how fucked up he was all the time. So Kurt and Dylan came down the stairs after shooting up that morning, and they found the room full of people, including a few junkies, like Courtney and Callie and their other nanny friend. So, of course, Kurt was shocked, and he accused everyone of being a hypocrite. He started calling each one of them out on the fucked up things that they had done on drugs, on drugs or for drugs. The next day, Courtney basically told him that if he didn't get treatment, she would limit him from seeing Francis Bean. So on March 30th, 94, Kurt went to the Exodus Recovery Center in Los Angeles for a 28-day treatment program. He was evaluated and determined to be in total denial about his drug problem, but nothing was said about any concern for him being suicidal. So that afternoon, he went outside and smoked a cigarette and chatted with another rock star who was in the program, 
Gibby Haynes from the butthole surfers. Haynes told him about a buddy of his who had escaped Exodus by jumping the wall. They laughed about it because Exodus wasn't a lockdown facility and anybody could just walk out the front door at any moment, so there was literally no reason to escape. But that night, Kurt went out for another cigarette and he decided to scale that same wall that him and Haynes had been joking about that day, and then he flew back to Seattle. This was just a week before his body was found, and what happened within that week is a big mystery. According to one police report, a cab driver picked someone up from Kurt's house, a man, on April 2nd, and took him to a sporting goods store to buy bullets. The man told the driver that he had a break-in recently, so he needed shotgun bullets. It does not say specifically whether or not this man was Kurt. The next day, on April 3rd, Cordy hired private investigator Tom Grant, saying that someone stole her husband's credit card. Tom Grant is the one biggest person who believes that Courtney is responsible for Kurt's death. So when Tom Grant meets Courtney, she's like, forget the credit card. My husband escaped from rehab in L.A. and is now missing. What she didn't tell Grant is that she knew Kurt was in Seattle that day. So the guy Callie I mentioned earlier, the junkie nanny guy, he said that he saw Kurt on April 2nd. So on April 2nd, the phone records show that Courtney and Callie talked to each other on the phone eight times. So you would think it would come up that Callie saw Kurt if Courtney really was concerned about him. April 2nd is also the day on the receipt for the shotgun shells, as well as the day the taxi driver picked up a man and took him to buy the bullets. So on April 3rd, I believe, Courtney filed a missing persons report under the name Wendy O'Connor, which is Kurt's mom. She told them that her son, Kurt, escaped from rehab and had gone back to Seattle, bought a shotgun, and maybe suicidal. Some people believe that Courtney made the report under Wendy's name because she knew enough about her own reputation to know that the police wouldn't take her seriously. Others believe that this was just a part of Courtney's process of planting false evidence that Kurt was suicidal. Courtney apparently called the rehab like a dozen times asking for Kurt and pretending to be different people. Like she would call as herself and get nowhere, so then she'd call as his manager, and then she'd call as his mom. So maybe she was genuinely concerned and felt that she had to make the report under Wendy's name to get anywhere. On April 6th, Tom Grant got Courtney's permission to search their home, and she had Dylan Carlson taken through the house. Dylan is the same guy who bought Kurt the gun. So, Dylan and Tom searched the whole house, except for the greenhouse over the garage. It was a dark, rainy night, and Tom didn't see it, and for some reason, Dylan didn't point it out. The next day, on April 7th, Courtney asked them to go back and check if Kurt's shotgun was still in their closet where he kept it. But when they got there, they found a note sitting on the stairs from Callie. So, Callie apparently wrote this note for Kurt. It says, Kurt. I can't believe you managed to be in this house without me noticing. You're a fucking asshole for not calling Courtney and at least letting her know that you're okay. She's in a lot of pain, Kurt. And this morning she had another accident, and now she's in the hospital again. She's your wife, and she loves you, and you have a child together. Get it together, or at least tell her you're okay, or she is going to die. It's not fair, man. Do something now. Oddly... Kurt had already been dead for at least a day by this point. Again, Tom and Dylan were just there the night before, and the note wasn't there. 
it's believed that Kurt most likely died on April 5th. So I guess it's possible that Callie thought Dylan and Tom coming and going were actually Kurt. Because remember, Callie's a huge junkie and, I don't know, maybe he sleeps a lot or maybe he's just confused. But Tom Grant believes that the note was left there specifically for him to find to manipulate the timeline to make it look like Kurt died later than he actually had. On April 8, 1994, Kurt's body was found. An electrician came to the house to install an alarm system. He had looked through the doors and saw Kurt's body lying on the floor with the shotgun on his chest. The electrician actually called the radio station right away and was like, you'd better have some good concert tickets ready for me. I've got a story for you. So the story got out right away. Tom Grant heard the news and he called his office and his associate told him that someone had tried to use Kurt's credit card to buy $43 worth of flowers hours before the body was found. To this day, we don't know who tried to use the card, but he had been dead for days by that point. The other weird thing is that Kurt did still have like over $100 in cash left in his wallet. So if it were the killer who took the card, it would be weird to take the very traceable credit card. Another strange detail, the shotgun barrel as well as the box of shelves didn't have any fingerprints whatsoever, suggesting that they may have been wiped down. There was a forensic expert that had said that the humidity in the home might have made the fingerprints disappear. However, she also said that the shotgun wasn't analyzed for almost a month after the death, and the box of shells wasn't analyzed for another couple of years. So, when police arrived to the crime scene, they looked around and basically immediately decided that this was a suicide. That was a bad idea to declare that immediately, but remember they had already received a missing persons report saying that Kurt was suicidal. Still, the police didn't do a great job here. They found a note and they basically instantly declared that it was a suicide note. But truly, the note seems like it could be more like a retirement letter to his fans. In an interview in 1998, Dave Grohl, who at the time was the drummer for Nirvana, confirmed that Nirvana was breaking up around that time. So if you look at the note, one of the things that most people point to as it being fake is that if you look at the last four lines, the handwriting has clearly changed. So it looks almost like somebody took a letter that Kurt really did write and then just added four lines to the bottom that made it look like he was committing suicide. So what the four lines say is, please keep going, Courtney, for Francis, for her life, which will be so much happier without me. I love you. I love you. So police asked Courtney for a sample of Kurt's writing for comparison, which is like, why didn't they ask his lawyer for it? So she provided the note that Kurt had left in Rome, which according to her was also a suicide note. But how do they know that both notes weren't written by her? In 1997, the show Unsolved Mysteries hired two of the world's most prominent handwriting analysts to conduct their own analysis. This time, they were able to get confirmed authentic song lyrics written by Kurt's hand. They also concluded that the body of letters seems to be Kurt's handwriting, but the last four lines were not Kurt's and included over a dozen discrepancies. There are forensic experts out there who are confident that Kurt's death was actually a murder, or at least believe that it should be further investigated. The fact that the cops touched the body more than twice before the coroner arrived wants to take the idea out of his wallet and wants to take the gun out of his hands, 
That's like a big no-no, and they shouldn't have touched anything. But even worse, the investigator actually declared that this was an open and shut case of suicide. So, the chief medical investigator who performed the autopsy on Kurt and declared that this was a textbook case of suicide, his name was Dr. Nicholas Hartshorn, and he was actually friends with Courtney Love in the L.A. music scene in the 80s. So that's interesting. With everything said, the prevailing theory is that Courtney had Callie help shoot Kurt up, gave him too much, and then shot Kurt and staged it to look like a suicide. There is another theory that a lot of people believe. That brings us to Eldon Hoke, also known as El Duce. So this guy was also in the music scene. He claimed that in December of 1993, Courtney Love showed up at his job and said, El, I need a favor. My old man's been a real asshole. I need you to blow his fucking head off. This was corroborated by El's co-worker who was there. According to El, Courtney offered him $50,000 to do the job. Apparently, the guys didn't hear anything about this afterwards, so they assumed it was a joke until late March 1994 when Courtney called El's job looking for him and saying she had a job for him, but El was actually touring with his band and didn't get the message. According to Tom Grant, El Duce took a lie detector test and was determined to be telling the truth about being offered $50,000 to kill Kurt. Now, lie detector tests aren't foolproof and they're not admissible in court, but it's just interesting to note that this guy did go and sit down and tell the truth. Interestingly, El Duce died less than a week after being asked to interview for the documentary Kurt and Courtney. He went on to explain that he knew who killed Kurt. So, he was clearly drunk in this interview, and he mentions a guy named Alan, which was clearly an accident, because then he's like, uh, I mean my friend. So, Alan was a violent dude who went by the name Alan Rich. He was known for random acts of violence. Supposedly, Al didn't have the stomach for murder, so he set up Courtney with Alan. And according to a source, Alan suddenly had a ton of money to spend shortly after Kurt's death. Alan was also known not to let things go, so the story goes that Alan was pissed that Elle named him on the interview, so Alan went to Elle's house, they got into an argument, and then they left together, and then that evening, El Duce was struck by a train. Again, who knows if any of this is fucking true. Okay, so there's one more thing. Sources say that on April 1st, 1994, Kurt had bought two round-trip airline tickets for him and another female that wasn't Courtney Love. Courtney thought that this mystery woman was possibly Kristen Pfaff, who was the bassist for Courtney's band Hole. A lot of people report that Courtney thought Kurt was having an affair with Kristen, but the two of them were adamant that they were just really good friends. Kurt had been quoted as saying, She's a fucking talented musician. She's also a beautiful soul. I think she's so beautiful, but if I ever told her that and Courtney found out, it would be hell. A lot of people theorize that Courtney also had something to do with Kristen's death. Kristen and Courtney clashed a lot. Of course, Courtney was a raging bitch, and Kristen and Courtney butted heads once at practice, and Courtney was pretty much ruthless after that. Kristen's friend Kathy was quoted as saying, Courtney yelled at Kristen all the time. She wanted to make sure Kristen knew who was boss. I think Kristen was afraid of Courtney. She thought she was out of control. 
She said Courtney was the most egomaniacal, insecure, and power-hungry person she had ever met. Kristen was interested in making good music. Courtney was more interested in making headlines for all the crazy stuff she did every day. Kristen's brother Jason also recalls that Kurt and Kristen were super fond of each other, and it made Courtney extremely jealous, so Courtney kept a really close eye on them. Jason says that he doesn't think they were involved. He's pretty sure they weren't. But Courtney was super jealous because Kristen was beautiful and she was smart. And she had a lot in common with Kurt. They used to talk about books and art and music. And Courtney did not like it. According to Jason, Courtney actually complained out loud that Kurt and Kristen were connecting too much. Two weeks later, Kurt gave Kristen a copy of the novel Perfume. And Jason said that Courtney hit the ceiling. Apart from Kristen thinking that Courtney was legitimately crazy, she also wanted to go back home to Minneapolis. She thought the Seattle scene was detrimental to her, like she had dabbled in drugs before moving there, but it was this music scene and her new circle of friends who made it hard for her to quit using and she became addicted to heroin. So in March of 94, after nearly a year of living in Seattle, she moved back to Minneapolis. When she found out that Kurt died in April, she was deeply affected. So Kristen went back to Seattle in April for Kurt's funeral, and then she went back in June to get her remaining things from her apartment to take back to Minneapolis. But sadly, she died on that trip to Seattle and never made it back home. And like Kurt's death, Kristen's death had a lot of pieces that didn't add up. So in an interview, Kristen once said, Kurt broke my heart, but she never elaborated on what that meant. But like I said, she went to rehab and she was getting cleaned up, she was much happier living in Minneapolis. She rejoined her old band, Janitor Joe, and she decided to leave Hole. Courtney was livid, but Kristen was adamant that she was done with them. So on June 14, 94, Kristen went back to Seattle with her friend Paul to pick up the rest of her things. They packed up a U-Haul and planned to drive back in the morning. At about 8 p.m., Paul offered to sit in the U-Haul and guard her things, and Kristen was going to take a bath before going to bed. So a few minutes after he went to go sit in the U-Haul, he saw Eric Erlinson show up. Again, Eric is the guitarist for Hole and Kristen's ex-boyfriend. So Paul saw Eric go into Kristen's apartment and leave after about 30 minutes. At about 9.30, Paul went back to the apartment to check on Kristen and knocked on the bathroom door. He apparently heard her snoring and just left because I guess she often fell asleep in the bathtub. I thought that was kind of weird, but he went back to the truck to go to sleep. In the morning, he went back to the apartment to see if Kristen was ready to go. He noticed the bathroom door was still locked and Kristen was still inside there and she wasn't responding. So he kicked the door down. She was in the bathtub unconscious, just like one or two inches out of the water. So Paul called 911. The police found a makeup bag with what they called syringes and narcotic paraphernalia. The police immediately declared this as an accidental overdose and again, the medical examiner called this an open-and-shut case similar to what was said about Kurt's death. And who was that medical examiner who performed Kristen's autopsy? Nicholas Hartshorn, the same guy who performed Kurt's autopsy. Kristen's mother doesn't think it was an overdose at all and urged the police to investigate it further, but they straight up told her that they just don't investigate overdoses, and this was an open-and-shut case. Courtney was quoted as once saying to Kristen, You fuck my guitar player, constantly make eyes at my husband, and now you're telling me how to sing? Just don't fuck with me because you'll regret it forever. 
Okay, so I realize that a lot of this isn't really evidence. At best, it's circumstantial. But it is interesting that Kristen was trying to leave Hole and Kurt was trying to divorce Courtney. So both of them were trying to leave her and then they died two months apart. All right, so before I wrap this up, let me tell you about the sources I use for my research. I started off reading this biography called Heavier Than Heaven by Charles Cross. I got about five chapters in before I went, hmm, this seems to really build on the idea that Kurt was suicidal his whole life. Something told me to try another book, so I landed on Love and Death, The Murder of Kurt Cobain. And what I found funny was that they actually mentioned Heavier Than Heaven, and they point out that the author Charles Cross is actually a friend of Courtney Love's. And so it's believed that Courtney may have tried to plant stories in Charles' head about Kurt being suicidal throughout his life, and he may have taken Courtney's account as fact. Needless to say, I decided not to use that book as a source. I did read Love and Death, The Murder of Kurt Cobain. I also listened to the last podcast on the left. They did a great job researching this case and exploring both the suicide and murder theories. I watched a few documentaries on Kurt Cobain, and it's really important to realize that half of these documentaries take a lot of Courtney's accounts for facts, and Courtney's not a very reliable source, to be honest. Also, it's hard to know anything for fact. Pretty much all the people involved here are junkies. We don't know how reliable some of the quotes out there are, and not only that, but everybody likes to think that they knew him better than everyone else, so take absolutely everything with a grain of salt. Alright guys, I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Broken Limelight. I just want to say that if I mysteriously die of a heroin overdose, do me a favor and look into it for me, okay? Thanks again for listening. Don't forget, you can now check out BrokenLimelight.com for updates and information on my episodes. Feel free to follow me on social media under DD West. My links will be on the website as well. Thanks again, guys. Bye! Today's episode is brought to you by Hunt a Killer. Hunt a Killer is a monthly mystery subscription box that's truly one of a kind. It's basically like a crime case in a box. It comes with case files, codes to decipher, detailed backgrounds about the suspects and the victims. There's evidence for you to evaluate. It tells an immersive story of a whole crime case from beginning to end. It's kind of like an escape room in a box. You can do this by yourself or you can team up with a buddy or do it for like a game night or even a date night. You can take a little break from technology and immerse yourself fully into this box, or if you prefer to be a more or if you prefer to be more of a high-tech investigator, you can join online communities and talk to other Hunt a Killer players about clues and stuff. Hunt a Killer also shares part of its proceeds with the Cold Case Foundation, which helps with real-life cold cases. The best part is that Broken Limelight listeners get 20% off of their first subscription box. So get started now at huntakiller.com and be sure to use code BROKENLIMELIGHT to get your 20% off.